Okay, welcome back. Comfortably and Numb is now comfortably immersed into its second season. My name, in case you've forgotten, is Blake Anderson, the program's manager here at the Umbrella Society, and also the host of this podcast. I'm coming at you today from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, on the traditional unceded territories of the Lekongan-speaking people. And this time of year is where Victoria might not seem as beautiful to some, as we're heading into the rainy gray season. Uh, Definitely the tourists start fading away at about this time of year, Uh, but I'm constantly finding so much that I'm grateful for in this city. Though we may have serious challenges with regards to addiction, mental health, and homelessness, I'm constantly buoyed by the fact that there are so many wonderful and talented individuals in our community who really care and are making a difference to our most vulnerable. One of these individuals is actually on our podcast today, as we take a bit of a left turn from our regular programming by welcoming Dr. Doug McGee. Dr. Doug has been a member of the Addiction Medicine Consult Service, which runs in both the Royal Jubilee and the Victoria General Hospitals. Um, This is a team that's comprised of a doctor, a social worker, and an umbrella support worker. Uh, This team meets with any individual who has presented in the hospital where substance use is or is suspected to be involved. Um, So the team has the challenge and the task of creating a discharge plan that will support the individual and aims to provide a continuum of care in the community. So this team works very closely together, sharing the duties of having difficult conversations surrounding change, uh, navigating the system by way of referrals, and also assisting the medical staff ensure that the individual gets the medical attention that they require while they're in the hospital. Uh, The dedicated members of this team do absolutely exceptional work day in, day out. And Dr. Doug has been part of this program since its inception and has been instrumental in developing this program into what it is today. But Doug's experience in the field of addiction, mental health and homelessness goes back about 20 years uh, when way less attention was given to addiction supports. This was at a time when methamphetamines had hit our society like a massive wave and Doug was on the front lines and became immersed in trying to support struggling individuals. Doug's experience and insight are incredibly powerful and the work he does continues to make a gigantic impact in our society. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Doug to our program. All right, Doug McGee, Dr. Doug McGee, thank you so much for coming in. Um, yeah, this is our first doctor that we've uh, we've had on the podcast, and I'm, I'm really excited that it's you that, that has come in to, uh, to chat with us. Um, as a little bit of background, I, I've known Doug now for well over 20 years. We've been working out at the same gym. Um, yeah, I'd say for about 25 years, hey, Doug? Yeah, I'm the big guy in the gym, I think. That's right. <laughs> he pushes all of us uh, little guys around. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, you know, the reason why I wanted to bring you on, obviously, you know, your your work with, with our AMCS team and, and um, you know, your work in, in addiction uh, medicine is just, you know, you're a bit of a legend in, in these parts and everyone always talks about working with Dr. Doug, um, you know, with quite a lot of reverence. And, uh, but also for, for my sake, um, I just remember back in the day, you know, you talking about getting into this field, um, you know, back to 20 plus years ago and um, getting into the addiction side of things. Um, and I always thought that was great because that was a time when really there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of, you know, concerted effort sur- surrounding and a lot of, you know, uh, attention brought to addiction. So I thought you kind of got into it almost at ground zero in a certain sense. Um yeah, I, I would love to hear a little bit of your background and what, what got you going uh, in addictions mess and what, what was your interest and, and where did you get your start? I'd love to hear a little history about, you know, your your career. 
Yeah. Um, thanks, Blake. Such yeah. a it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. And I mean that. I um, I've always admired you, and uh, and you're right. I think we met 20, 21 years ago at the Y. I've got a gym problem, and uh, <laughs> I guess I'm not alone in that. But uh, yeah, it's been really sweet to to have that thread along the way, that mm. the gym thread in my life. But um, yeah, it was about 21 years ago that I, I mean, there were some formal training programs elsewhere, but I uh, was volunteering with street youth and I just needed to do something with my career, salvage it basically. I'll right. tell you that in a minute. Yeah. Um, and it was a really cool time because there was a funding for enhanced skills and I was working with street youth and we needed a clinic in town. And so I um, was able to get six months funding to, to learn street youth medicine. And it had never been done before. Like nobody had ever studied formally street youth medicine. And for me, that was this blend of psychiatry and and addictions. And and at the time, it was really cool because crystal meth, I mean, intellectually and from a training perspective, was really cool because crystal meth was sort of this big tsunami of drug politically. And so crystal meth is probably our, our most psychiatrically destabilizing drug like acutely like people get psychotic from it more than other drugs and so it was this perfect blend you know if i studied crystal meth in street youth i would i would learn about mental health indirectly and if i studied crystal meth i'd learn about addiction indirectly and flesh it out so that's what that's about the time you and i met i was i was heading on that journey right yeah now how hard was it to uh get you know funders on board and and actually get that program up and running well that was a remarkable thing. You know, going back probably 10 years before that, I had graduated in a time when there was family doctors being squeezed out of the hospital. We were being restricted in our billings. Uh, international grads like from Australia and Ireland and South Africa were being discouraged from coming here. We were, as new grads, discouraged from working in BC. Mm-hmm. And it was a super disheartening time. There was no funding for anything. And if we tried to work, we were, you know, buildings were, were revoked and basically I wasn't getting paid for things. And it was, it was, honestly, it was a really disheartening time. And I was so lucky because I, I discovered rock climbing, to be honest. Okay. And I, and I, uh, something that I already, I just like, why did it take me so long to find something I love so much? Right. And, and I, and I, I just fell into it. Uh, I, I met a really cool group of, of climbers in town and I, uh, I, you know, by some, by some descriptions, I probably developed a problem to climbing. Right. And I, uh, so I was in the gym a lot training for that when, when you and I met, but you know, after a certain time, I, you know, I grew up and, and the climate had changed. And by the time I was looking for Oh, support to try to salvage my career and and maybe study street youth medicine. The, the things had changed, and and mm. and I I put it out one day uh, at the advice of a friend to maybe try to get some funding for that. And I had funding within hours, or certainly by the end of a day. Oh, wow. it, the question was, when do you want to start? Okay, so it was so, totally different. So the need yeah. the need was just so evident. Is that well, the need was evident for to enhance the skills of family doctors. If they were in a community where they saw a need and they didn't have the skills or the knowledge base and they wanted to develop that so that they could serve a population, the funding was there. And, okay. and that was you know, kind of focused on inner city and then rural. 
And I was interested in the inner city, and, and nobody was looking at street youth medicine. There was no street youth clinic in town. There was no youth clinic that was addressing the needs of, of the highest risk, marginalized, street-involved, sexually exploited, drug-using youth. It was a, mm-hmm. um, And so it was, uh, you know, when I po- put my hand up, it was, it was an immediate yes. Okay. So when do you want to start? Right. Wow. It's got to be empowering. No, it was terrifying. Ter- I bet. Well, <laughs> it was right, totally terrifying. Right. <laughs> I was a rock climber. Right, I was living right. in my van half the year and, right. and, and, and then to suddenly go like, oh, I'm going to really be a doctor and I'm going to do something in this town and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be, it was terrifying to try to imagine myself being consistently available, responsible. Yeah, it was a big change in my life. Right. I just want to hang out in the gym and go climb. And right. that was fading out. And yeah, yeah but all it was of a sudden, an act of desperation. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. So what did those first, you know, so you get the grants. What did those early days look like? You know, how do you, how do you set up when there really isn't an established infrastructure already in place? How do you, you know, get something like that up and running and, and you know. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the training itself was 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 really empowering i did some time in toronto and uh hung out kind of in the underbelly of toronto for a while and at the center for addiction mental health in toronto you know downtown toronto had great teachers both on the ground in the inner city late at night like Mm -hmm. this is what's happening here and in the in these academic centers super nuanced teaching downtown vancouver i was i was paired with a dr cornell who was at the time doing excellent addiction work at uh, Three Bridges, uh, you know, the, the uh, drawing sort of, you're providing care to inject uh, crystal meth injecting male sex workers. Fascinating. And I, I you know, I attended raves. I worked at St. Paul's Emerge. So, and then I started attending all these addiction conferences and the, and the giants of the, of the, of the day were, were really distant mentors to me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was also uh, volunteering a lot with AIDS Vancouver on the Y outreach, and, and and a lot of the outreach workers were also my mentors at the time. So the training was super, super exciting. And then I came back, and uh, and the youth clinic was at a transition. They had a, a youth clinic in Esquimalt and at a school, and they were looking for. They're in a transition time, and and I said, you know, basically like let's hit the inner city let's go downtown and mm-hmm. and there was a there was there was sort of no hesitation and uh, uh the youth empowerment society had a space and we just we just opened shop and so it was actually really and then there was this momentum because crystal meth was was big uh people were scared about it i was giving a lot of talks around crystal meth at the time mm-hmm. um yeah so politically there was a lot of interest and in, and in funding and you know adequate funding at the time right and so you know as far as the actual work with the you know um, the street entrenched youth that that you're working with and and you know early stages of crystal meth um what what did that look like as far as da- daily practice was concerned like coming in and having to learn on the floor i, I guess right like learn 100%. as you go and um you know yeah that must have there must have been some trial by error on on how to approach this growing and also really unknown uh you know almost epidemic that was hitting us right at the time totally blake i mean i think you say it well that it was just sort of figuring out as i went or as we went collectively and learning from the youth learning from like 
the the outreach workers, the social workers, the 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 street workers, like the support workers, and then and then just reflecting with this these distant literature body and and academic mentors, and just trying to pull that all together into the day to day. But honestly, the youth were my biggest educators. Um, it was an interesting time because crystal meth was the first time that the internet was functional enough that it that it allowed for the immediate dissemination of, of recipes the refinement of those so that synthetic drugs could be made in small you know like literally in a van right. could be made anywhere by almost anyone it was a totally different world where you know before it, it was a secret handshake and you had to get into you know, organized crime to find out what the labs look like. And right. so this was, this was new. Crystal meth was going to be everywhere. Um, yeah, I've, I've lost my train. Where, where have we gone? Well, yeah, I mean, that it, it's interesting that you brought that up. It, you know, the, the landscape almost changed overnight, right? Totally. You know, with, with the, you know, the accessibility and that, like you're saying, everybody now, you know, could kind of get in on this and, and, um, but as far as you, you providing support at this time, what what did that look like? I mean, you know, did you have any idea on what you're you know getting yourself into? You said that you know you understood that there was a psychiatric component, and this is something that's I don't know if we even you know I, we still seem to not have a grasp on is the you know um, drug induced psychosis and that's involved with something like crystal meth. And but at the time, you know, when you're just starting off. That's that must have been fairly daunting to totally, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for thanks for reminding me or bringing me back on track. The um, the the cool point about crystal math is that it was you're right. It was kind of like a surprise and light switch kind of evolution of of the drug use. And prior to that, youth were were using heroin. They were smoking and injecting heroin, snorting heroin, and and then a collection of other drugs, alcohol, cannabis, and and, and some other hard drugs, but it was mostly heroin. And there was, and, mm-hmm. and suddenly everybody was smoking meth. So the injection drug use issue evaporated overnight. The, the justification for, or the need for like opioid agonists, like methadone at the time, um, it just wasn't there. Nobody was, you know, the, it was mm. trivial amounts using heroin. So suddenly we had all these psychotic youth. We had no good treatment. And, and, the, and the things that I had been anticipating needing, like methadone and, you know, right. formal treatment and these well-established drugs, uh, it just wasn't valid. So it right. became a very relational kind of approach where we were doing motivational enhancement and, you know, building trust and, and getting people in the door who are, you know, kind of like wolves circling a camp, mm. um, trying to make it low barrier, no rules, um, and then just build trust so that people can engage with uh, psychosocial supports. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So really taking it on that social, the, the social aspect of, of totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The interpersonal, um, psychological work of, 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 of trying to unravel the uh, addiction from that perspective rather than like, Oh, we can, we can stop cravings and, uh, and protect overdose with methadone, you know, right. It, right. That wasn't, that wasn't valid. Right. There's nothing I could do. So we had to dig medically. We had to dig deeper. And, totally. Right. Totally. Find out what else was, yeah. yeah. Was, yeah. Other interventions at play. Yeah. And, and there's a, one other part too, which is that, you know, this was happening while I was training. And so, so I was like, Oh my gosh, this is really, this is really wild. Like the youth are telling me the meth is everywhere. So I, you know, I 
I put calls out and to the inner city doctors, like, who should I talk to? Who knows about, uh, knows about what? And I was oh. like, no, who, who should I talk to about this crystal meth stuff and the psychosis and the, you know, how do we approach it? And like, dude, nobody, nobody we knows. Don't, no, you're, you're steady. You should do that. You should tell us, you should be part of the, the vanguard of figuring this out. And so I was totally winging it. Okay. Yeah. And was that kind of, you know, did you take, take that on and take that, that challenge on to, to be the kind of the driving force and, and trying to figure out how to, you know, what proper interventions were, were needed? I, I did my best. Yeah. Yeah. I tried. Right. right. And I mean, as far as, and how do you message that to the, the greater body of, you know, how does the word get out? How, you know, and, and this is something that I, I'm, you know, curious just at large, you know, it seems like the climate changes overnight and how, how is like, um, you know, you know, doctors and, and professionals, how do you adapt to that when, when it's, nobody knows what to anticipate, you know, like it seems like these waves happen. How do you, how do you get on top of it? Yeah. I mean, we, we, I think there's sort of three or four things we, you know, that I was involved in that we were trying. Um, the, the first thing was I was, I was studying it and I was and at these conferences and I would be asked to, to provide some, you know, I'd talk about it. Hmm. Um, we did a little, I did a street, or sorry, a, a survey, basically a study uh, of high school kids in Victoria and street-involved youth, try to get a sense of what was happening um, and publish those, you know, so we're publishing it, we're speaking about it, um, set the youth clinic up and tried to become a sort of a, a center of excellence and got some medical students and some psychiatrists and, right. you know, tried to build that momentum of a, of a sort of a, a like an inner city clinic like Kool-Aid, but for youth that was a center for learning and, and care, right. Mostly care, but, but learning is a, is a huge part of it. Um, to disseminate, you know, publicly we did, uh, I, I, I made a, a video with street youth so I gave a bunch of kids street youth cameras and asked them to go out and create a photo novella or a document, you know, document what they, what their experience with crystal meth right. and drugs were at the time. And then we made a film with their oh. voiceover on these images. It's like a, a day in the life, essentially. Of, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and they were the experts. They were telling us, right, right. in this film. I was, I was honestly, I was quite proud of that and uh, my involvement in that and their work. Uh, and then we had a, 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 a zine that the youth, were making and they were trying to disseminate knowledge to other youth through that mm. so we were the film was shown in schools at times and talks sort of for the public publications and talks for physicians and other healthcare providers and on all the other community providers and then this uh this zine to try to spread knowledge from youth to youth directly right yeah yeah that peer kind of yeah yeah education piece exactly. oh, really cool right. yeah so how long did you end up doing that for like this was uh was this a long I think a was long a, tenure yeah no exactly it was surprising because i was so terrified and inexperienced um but i managed to stick around for seven years before okay. i sort of aged out of it yeah right right and uh you know during that time obviously you know you probably saw <laughs> your as far as your your experience and your skills when you're on the ground floor like that that must have been a credible learning curve and pretty pretty big growth opportunity for yourself as well as a as a doctor in the field yeah, I think I started to come into myself a little bit by the end of that in terms right. of, you know, gleaning some skills and... Right, Yeah. right. Where was the where was the next step for you then in that? Well, I, um, 
you know, sort of aging out of that, it was a time when um, there was lots of things collided in my life, including the suicide of my younger brother. And, uh, and then politically, there was, a, uh, there was a move to cut services for uh, high-risk youth, or sorry, for, for uh, families with, you know, at, at risk or vulnerable mm-hmm. families. Right. And uh, oh, I, just, I just couldn't face working in that field. That was part of it. But, but working in the field when we could just see another wave of, of youth that we could have helped early and upstream right. coming at us because supports had been pulled back a little bit. Right. Um, so I backed out and I was, I was working uh, in the STI clinic, the uh, public health clinic, and that was super interesting, doing some walk-in. And, uh, but right at the, time, at the end of the time, I was, I was invited to give a talk for Island Health on, on, on youth addictions. And I was offered a job with Physician Health at the time. And, um, and physician health is, is super interesting because physicians were, you know, were, were super resilient, empowered group. We're also have the same vulnerabilities as street youth. We have the same degree of vulnerability as street youth, the same barrier, degree of barriers to care that street mm. youth do. And that's outrageous if you think about street youth, you know, they're, they're turned away from clinics and right. they're, they're discouraged to go to emerge and. There's often not a clinic that's low barrier and appropriate for street-involved youth. And, uh, and physicians have totally the flip side of the coin. Like, but we have, a, we have barriers to care. And then we have these horrible outcomes of burnout and highest rates of suicide of any college age match group. Like we, we win the award for right. burnout and suicide. And... And then we, we have all the other struggles of, of uh, relational struggles and isolation and addictions and things. And so I was invited to do that, and it really resonated with me. Okay. Um, and then I'd had some professionalism concerns, uh, i.e. I had been uh, disciplined because okay. I was brittle and... Um, and Yeah, so, I mean, I, I to- it totally jazzed me to work with my peers i was young you know i still i still felt like i was just entering entering the age where i might be might have some of the maturity to do that right it was about 11 years ago i probably am getting it now but uh but that was a huge privilege and then and then i ended up of course being most interested or more interested in the addictions part of it so you kind of got brought yeah yeah and so is that is that what kind of got you on to the addiction medicine consult service? Then? Totally, that, yeah, yeah. So the then the next step, segue? yeah. Right. Thanks, Blake. So the next step was that I was like, okay, well, I've I've I figured this out, you know, for the first few steps, um, but I actually have no no formal applicable knowledge for physicians. Right. You know, if okay. I'm going to work with physicians, you know, I, I work with street youth, and and I did motivational enhancement around crystal meth and. And I forget how to do all these other things. And right. and my training was out of my van in Toronto and downtown Vancouver and and at Raves. And is that really applicable? No, it's not. And so I went back and I did all I did some training and I was being certified and I um, I wrote the international exam just when the local service was being started. And right. uh, the director of the, the the program or who was setting it up at the time arm wrestled me and won. And again, I, you know, I'm, you know, insecure. I, I, I don't have any clinical skills. I haven't been in the hospital for 17 years, I think, at the time, right. and totally out of my league. But, um, but I had this, but I had the knowledge, right? 
and I had some experience. So he was like, you got to start and you can't wait right. until that we're up and running and you know, like we're all just going to be developing and you have to come now. And so the time. Right. <laughs> so right. I did. Okay. So I was there on the ground and, yeah. and that was, uh, that was the only way I could have done it. Right. And how is the concept, you know, obviously this is, you know, developed into, you know, quite a, an established, you know, program. How was it pitched at first? What was the, you know, what was the initial implementation of, of a project? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't speak to that too much, but, yeah. uh, you know, Dr. Herring showed up in town and uh, had this visionary way of, you know, he snowball sampled everybody in town. He interviewed everybody who is involved with substance use in the city, right. community providers and uh, hospitalists who were doing the work and administrators. And he chatted with everybody and, right. and, and, you know, what is needed here, what would fly. And, and he, he tried to set up a, and did beautifully, uh, a consult service, which is a, a consultancy where we, you know, hospital, like people in the physicians, teams in the hospitals who want an opinion or support of any patient, whether it's an eMERGE or ICU or psychiatry or anywhere else in the hospital, an opinion or support around any addiction. Right. Um, so there would be a physician, a social worker, and an outreach worker, somebody uh, like a peer worker, and, and try to help people in the transition into hospital through emergency, help them stay in hospital, be supported, connecting optimally to services, and transition as they left the hospital, but but then the, but then also trying to you know increase capacity to address some of the the substance use stuff from a very crisp medical perspective in the hospital. Right. So building capacity for the other physicians, our own capacity, and 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 um, and just trying to have better medical outcomes, like people staying right. if they if they need to stay in hospital um, and not leaving because they're they feel like they're they're not being treated well medically. Um, but yeah, it was this, it was this small team of, of, uh, physician, social worker, outreach worker. It's blossomed into, uh, both hospitals now, local hospitals, uh, and, and, and quite a robust big team now. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and what I, you know, really encourages me, this is one of my you know favorite programs. I think that umbrella is a part of, um, and I think it is the fact that we're looking at an issue from such a comprehensive, uh, you know, so many different angles, you know, the fact that this, obviously there are medical concerns that need to be addressed. Um, you know, there's obviously system navigation and advocacy that needs to happen on the social worker side, but then there's also this non-clinical piece that, you know, just that human element to, you know, providing that care and, and seeing where people are at and knowing that this, these are such complex issues uh, <laughs> that addiction does, it goes way beyond the substance, you know, that and, and the complications that go around that it's, it's so much more of the social aspect to it and the economic, you know, piece to that. And, you know um, yeah, it's really, for me, I just really love how the team tackles it in such a comprehensive way, you know, hundred um, percent. Yeah. And that we, and that we have, three parts of the team and they're all equally important. They're mm -hmm. critical. And sometimes, you know, the physician isn't involved and sometimes, sometimes the social is just the peer worker or just right. the, you know, yeah, it's very cool. Well, and, and I feel that and I've, I've, you know, been at, at times where that, uh, delineation, it doesn't, you know, there is still a hierarchy and that is something that I don't feel. I think that's a kind of special 
to you know the AMCS program is how it is there is this kind of equal you know footing for for all of the workers and and all elements to the the team and so I really respect that and, and it's cool too seeing you know so many new young doctors that are kind of getting into addictions medicine as well and you know how that's expanded you know I think as far as the pool is concerned of doctors involved it seems like it's more than it used to be is that oh yeah definitely yeah. it's growing yeah the um yeah so the involvement with the umbrella and the the outreach workers for me goes back around the time in this transition before i went into or about the time i was going into physician health as i said i was working in a walking clinic over the years and gordon harper who was the original guy that set up the umbrella hmm. as far as i understand you you know he 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 found me as it were <laughs> and he mentored me and he he would bring future umbrella clients to me be, right. you know people who are unattached to gp so so i became their gp gordon right. wouldn't take no for an answer and and he'd tell me what to do you know he'd tell me how to do it and and without without that work with the umbrella at the time there's no way i could do my job and right. so it was actually really really pivotal learning for me and support for me right. to, to be to be part of a this virtual physician outreach worker team in a walk-in clinic before any of this existed okay and uh so so that was it was really exciting for me to come into this show up at this team you know in the early days and and every day now um when umbrella was there formally right um because i you know it definitely definitely means a lot to me to be an ally or to be seen as an ally but also to you know the umbrella workers have been huge teachers for me in how to do it and and the equivalence of, of umbrella workers going way back to street involved youth, you know, talking right. to me about how do you approach, how do you, how do you, how do you do this? Yeah. yeah. Super fascinating. Right. Yeah. And as far as, um, you know, a, a program like this and, and sustainability with, you know, obviously we've kind of expanded the program and you know, that it's now, yeah, both hospitals and we're trying to get, you know, longer days and we have supports in the ER and PEZ as well. And, um, you know, as, as far as, is, is this a sustainable, like funding wise and cost wise, <laughs> would you think? Um, I mean, what's the, what, what's your take on, on a program, well, you know? You know, when I first started, I'd been, you know, been working in the community and I'd been, you know, recently having left the, the youth clinic, which was always struggling for just a few more sessions for physicians to, to provide some care. And a lot of that work was volunteer. And we're, you know, off, you know, getting free rent and everything was on a shoestring. It was, you know, it was a smelly urine stained, unpainted hallway. And, <laughs> and we're just, we're just doing what we can. Right. right. And, uh, and then showing up to the hospital, having not been there for, as I said, like a decade and a half or more, I was pretty confronted about just how expensive everything in the hospital is. Like, what does an ICU stay cost? For somebody, right. what is a what is an emerge visit cost? What is an emerge visit with a two day stay cost? What is an uh, what is an IV antibiotic treatment for an infected heart valve from injection drug use cause? And uh, and thinking back to that heartbreak that I was experiencing when I was seeing some of the cuts to to vulnerable families, and just calculating in my head, which would be like one ICU stay down the road for somebody could you know could have provided an outreach worker support or some some formalized and and very significant support for some of these 
these families that we know would would benefit from support and would change the trajectory of of, of human lives like their kids and so i you know i've struggled with that over the years but the but the consult service is you know it's trying to be super efficient and and mm. uh, it's providing good, really good care it's it's keeping yeah, I think it's increasing the efficiency of the care, right. but uh, but having come from the community and the, the the looking at vulnerable youth in our community and and seeing the disparity between acute care and the upstream funding was was uh, was difficult to digest initially. Right, and I think that's something that we still see. Right, you know, um, yeah, I think you bring up a great point. Uh, every time someone comes into the hospital, this is incredibly, you know, expensive. And, uh, you know, my, my work, uh, you know, I had a, a role, um, uh, up at VIRCC in the, you know, with, with umbrella, but you know, the criminal justice system and how expensive that is in the, the mm-hmm. court system. And, mm-hmm. and you're totally right. If, if that early intervention is something that seems to be the hardest to obtain funding for, but you would think would save so much money in the long run, right? It's, it's, you know, if this is a funding thing, I think we end up paying for it one way or the other, you know, and just usually more unfortunate circumstances when, you know, someone's health has deteriorated or, you know, the laws got involved. Yeah. So I, I guess that's, is that kind of part of it for you is? That's exactly it. That's right. exactly it. Yeah. And right. I, don't, I don't think it's easy and I don't have any answers, but, but I had a lot of those sort of confronting feelings about, about just how how sad it is to be doing such expensive interventions on people when we could have changed the trajectory of their lives potentially significantly earlier. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, as we stand now in this, you know, current landscape, what, what's your take on it? What, I mean, and obviously there's been so much development, um, you know, in, uh, you know, in our knowledge around addiction and our interventions, um, you know, we definitely don't have a, a handle on it yet. And, you know, some people would even say things are, are you know, worse than it. But what's what's working? What's, you know, what's going well? And, and but what are the challenges that you still face on a day to day basis or the things that still kind of, you know, break your balls a little bit and, and grind you down? Um, you know what? Yeah. What's what, what what's working? What's not from your you know perspective or. Yeah. I, I mean, let's, let's focus. I mean, from a, from a very personal perspective, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, working, working in, you know, I feel super lucky to be working on the addiction consult service and, and to have worked with street involved youth at the youth clinic and, and to have had the training and, and to see this, this thing evolve. It's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll defer the sort of the, the heartbreak and where, where I fear we're going and, mm-hmm. and what's not working. For a minute, but but personally, I, you know, I think there's lots of things that are really working well, and I I think the the acuity, the severity, the heartbreak of the you know the current opioid climate skews us to think we're not we're not uh, we're not doing enough, and maybe we aren't, but and and things aren't going well. But um, you know, I, I was around before there was Umbrella, before there was an AMCS, before there was a youth clinic in town, um, mm-hmm. before there was Suboxone and Cadian and, and any all sorts of other things. And, um, you know, I just think we're doing, I think a lot of the stuff we're doing is really great, like right. really intensely awesome. And I, I think we forget that. Right, sure. You know, like the fact that 
I don't know, just all of it. I just think it's really, we're doing good work. Hmm. It's, it's, there's lots of need and, and it's heartbreaking, but, but to see all these things and, you know, policies and, and, and people in senior positions and, and, and nursing addiction fellowships and social worker addiction fellowships and this, as you were saying, like there's lots of, there's lots of training of, of new people in all sorts of different fields coming up and right. very strong in, and all the way out to, you know, up at the academic institutions where people are looking at neurobiology of it, uh, and, and the fundamental sciences of it. And it's anyway, I just think we're doing lots. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's the, pro- I'm glad that you say that because, you know, I think a lot of times we, you know, it's easy to fall on what's not working Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the doom and gloom, but right. There is progress and, you know, and yeah, I've seen, you know, seen that you know, like you were just mentioning, you know, Katie and Suboxone, you know, just having different interventions for, for opiate replacement therapy, essentially, and having options for, for folks trying to, you know, really beat a, a really, really challenging, you know, uh, aspect of their life, right. Yeah. And to, to get on the other side of it, the fact that there is some, um, agency that they can still take into what that looks like for them, I think is really amazing. And yeah, yeah. In, in dissemination sort of knowledge among clinicians, like we, when I was studying, uh, like almost twenty years ago, Dr. Mead in the inner city was saying, "Look, you know, like Europeans and Australians are using these medicines for alcohol, and, you know, naltrexone and acamprosid. How come we're not in Canada?" And mm-hmm. so, like, of course, it's and everybody knows it now. Every medical, every medical student knows about these things, and we're right. commonly used. So, yeah, I think there's lots coming. I mean, the. You know, the trouble, there's lots of trouble, but uh, but back when crystal meth sort of was the first drug of, you know, we could make synthetically, it sort of reminded us just how how wildly capable humans are at creating their own destruction. Mm. And, and it was the first, and we could see them coming. I remember sitting at a conference up at UVic and saying, like, I don't know what's coming next, but something's coming next. Really? And I did not predict fentanyl. Right. But other people might have like it was like okay what's our what's our next synthetic drug that we are now going to make and it's going to be the next tsunami and we, since that time we've seen fentanyl and and then maybe some synthetic benzos or benzo analogs like etizolam and mm-hmm. i don't know what's coming next but right it's not going to be good right like we're good at figuring this out we're good right. at, at eclipsing our own sort of our own dopamine reward pathways with social media and, you know, degrading our sense of identity and, and with AI or a sense of intimacy. And right. like we are, Pretty we're good. clever. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not going to be good. This out. Yeah. 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 Um, right. yeah. So I guess it's trying to just stay on, stay on top of as best you can. And, you know, how do we, how do we roll with those punches when they come yeah, in? Yeah. And, and you know. so, so I think, I think you were asking two things like what, you know, you're, I don't want to get down the question of like, what do I think should happen? Because I think that's a big, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a dangerous trap for somebody who has some experience in one field. And in particular, I think physicians, we think we should weigh in in different areas. I, I want to stay in my lane. Like I don't have any mm-hmm. epidemiological, epidemiological training. I don't have any public health training of significance. I don't have any policy. I'm not a policy analyst or a policy developer i'm not a politician you know like i don't know how to do these things like Mm -hmm. i know how to be a worker bee right and uh, i i took some steps into 
you know, a little bit of admin and that didn't go well. And I, right. you know, I'm a worker bee yeah. and uh, I like that. And I, uh, so what goes well for me is the day to day work on the team, work in the hospital, which is a radically different supportive environment now. And then, and then these profound moments with patients that come every now and then, which are riveting and intimate that stick with me and, and, um, some of those I've shared with umbrella workers along the way, and uh, they're so remarkable that I, uh, yeah, it, it definitely overshadows all the work. It's, right. it's it's super super meaningful. Right, you have those moments, and, and I mean, I yeah, I think I think that's you know for me that's what kept me in 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 this line of work was those moments, those breakthroughs, or just you know those moments of clarity when you know um, yeah, I think it's it's really cool, and then and then the profound connection that you can, you can develop with, you know, and, and I, th I think seeing in the hospital as well, it's, you know, at least in, in my limited experience, you know, working, working that program and, you know, you definitely see people at their vulnerable, you know, the most vulnerable, um, and people kind of sometimes at their lowest and there's some, some really beautiful human quality that you can get out of that. And, um, you know, and it's really cool to see people, maybe even contemplate making a change that never have thought about it before. You know, they may be scared shitless and not know where to go, but just having that idea that, Hey, I'm worth it. And, I, you know, and, and I do, I do want to be here and I do want to, you know, change, you know, my course, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty impactful moments that you can have. It's huge, right? but yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're, you know, when you're, you know, approaching clients and, and how, do you kind of have like a, a general sense? Is it, is it just a, you know, obviously you're seeing individuals with, you know, alcohol use disorder, which has very different, you know, you have people that are in psychosis, you know, coming with, with, you know, meth and, you know, stimulant use, you have, um, you know, opioid users and people are coming off of overdose. How do you, do you approach every situation differently? Do you kind of come in, not knowing what to expect or do you have like a certain, you know, approach that's kind of consistent throughout, uh, your, your line of work or how do you, how do you go about, um, you know, and, and like every situation too. And I think this is what the general public doesn't understand. Every situation is so complex and so unique and individual to, to, to someone. Yeah. How do you, how do you as, as a, you know, professional approach these situations when you probably have 12 really, really, you know, or more, uh, hard, you know, situations to kind of walk into on any given day. Yeah, it's a. I mean, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of things in my head that that I value and that they're lessons that people have taught me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, patients and and outreach workers primarily, and then there's I do enjoy the nerdy medicine. There's no way around that, you know? Totally. So I find it academically totally. and, you know, intellectually very interesting. So okay. I enjoy that and, right. and I know that and I'm comfortable with that. And that drives a lot of what I do. But when I, but you're asking about when I, when I, when I walk into a patient's space, whether mm. it's a cubicle in Emerge or they're up their chair in the psychiatric Emerge, the PEZ, or, uh, or in a, in a ward room, um, there's a few things that I always remind myself, and uh, and the first thing is that, and these are lessons that other people have taught me, mm -hmm. and sometimes very intentionally. Right. They've sat me down to tell me this, or I've 
I've had those aha moments at lectures or all sorts of different places. But one of the things is that anything that is told to me by someone is a gift. Right. They are they are putting something on the table. They don't have to. Mm-hmm. They've chosen to, and that is a gift to me. That's a right. and and uh, and to see see what that is, and to honor that. Right. Is, uh, is super important for me. Right. Um, the, uh, by the words of Dr. Baker and I, uh, Ray Baker, one of the uh, grandfathers or grand- grandparents of, for me, for medicine, uh, addiction medicine in BC, you know, he, he said, we have to, and I've heard this mentioned a lot since then, and, and I, but it is that we have to believe in people until they believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. There is, we all know, there's so much shame and uh, humiliation and and vulnerability in, in having failed somehow. And addiction is one of those things that is seen personally by, uh, you know, I think by people that way. And, and, and I'm, I just don't, um, I just don't want any of that stuff to come from me. Right. And right. I want to, and I want to, I want to see the humanity in that person and I want to see their strength and working with youth taught me to, to focus on the strengths and the resiliency of that person. Um, but I definitely don't want to have any, any judgment and, uh, you know, there's lots about myself I'm, I've historically and probably even now, you know, ashamed of, or I felt those feelings and, mm. and, uh, I've watched our family struggle with, a, with a recurrent psychotic illness and a suicide of my brother and, and the kind of how that breaks down one's own like, Oh, you know, Oh, we all have failings. We all have faults. Mm. And and I see that in myself. And I think that's the thing I love about working with umbrella workers is that I think you guys have this huge, I don't even know if you're aware of it, but you've done personal work Mm. with that, Mm. with that in a way that's humbling and rebuilding and uh, and I, I try to emulate that. I try to emulate right. you guys, you know, right. and that sort of non-judgmental. And I'm like trying to be there. Um, I try to eat before I go in, so I'm not hungry. <laughs> I, I honestly, I try to have no expectations. Right. It's like, and I'll I'll say to them, look, this is what I would like, but it's irrelevant. Right? What do you, you know? What where are you at? And I'm not going to help people move in motivation or change if I come out, and I and I'm othering them i'm shaming them i'm more mm. powerful i'm more i know what's right right i i just need to be curious and supportive and grateful right and not hungry and grouchy there you go <laughs> right so right you gotta take care of yourself i totally so, have to take right. care of myself i have yeah. to go into the nurse's room and i have to have a cookie right and have a pee <laughs> totally. and take a breath yeah right yeah right and then pretend I'm an outreach worker. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And I think, I mean, I don't think I, that is, is, is so wonderful to, you know, I, I really wish that we had more doctors that, you know, and I think we do. And, you know, it's, it's, that really is that human element to it, you know, I think is, is just so encouraging. I think that's why you've, you know, got so much respect from, from our team is, is, exactly what you just said you know just coming in and meeting people on a human level and meeting people where they're at and you know we say this all the time too you know we 
working with, with family members who want us to, you know, they should be doing this and this. And now it's the individual's choice. Yeah. Like you say, I want this, <laughs> but where are you at? What are you totally. wanting? Right. Yeah. And, and actually having that humility to meet people where they're at. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a gift, you know, that, that you have. And, and I really appreciate, you know, that's, that's really what we try to instill in our workers too, is that always find that human element, you know, and, and try to meet people where they're at. And we never know too, and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, some people it takes a bunch of times coming through, but every positive interaction plants a seed and might be 100%. that tipping scale, maybe not now, but maybe, you know, down the road that they've kind of held on to and remembered. Right. So yep. every interaction is important. Yeah. Somebody yeah. believes in me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Even if I don't right now. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. So Blake, I want to, I want to, I want to build on what you just said before you go on. Yeah. I, uh, it's self-serving too, what I do. Like I'm, you know, I'm shy and I, you know, I'm, I, I, I have a tendency to isolate at times and, and the, I've really benefited socially hmm. by working in, you know, maybe too much. So, uh, by working on a team in the hospital and working in the hospital and, but you know, in paradoxically I'm chatty and that's how right. you and I met. Right. Because yeah. I'm chatty. Right. In the gym. Totally. Um, and so these, you know, chatting, I love it. Right. I, you know, and I'm, so when I, um, you know what I'm saying? I, I approach this way. It's very much self-serving. Like I really enjoy it. And I, I grew up in the bush and I, I, I like chatting with a, a large range of people. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, when I was in high school, I was the nerdy athletic straight A student and I wanted to go to the parties mm. and my rough and tumble, like really rough and tumble, you know, some of them are dead. Some of them were, you know, very different life right. uh, trajectories would protect me. Mm. And they would say, Doug, you're not going to that party. That party's not for you. Right. And, so I've been long influenced by uh, being looked after by all sorts of people and, and respecting all, all types. And so I just really enjoy chatting with people and right. chatting with patients. So I want to be really clear, like it's self-serving. Right. Yeah. Like no, I enjoy right. it. And well, I think that's, you know, and that's what I was going to ask, you know, what, what keeps you in this line of work, you know, what can I, so it's that, that connection right? Yeah. I'm, I, this, yeah I'm sure. I like people. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you can, I mean, in, in my experience, man, I have, I've had some of the most genuine, most beautiful conversations and that, like you say, are self-serving in a, in a jail, you know, in a, on, on a unit in a jail or in, in the hospital when someone's, you know, down out, there's these moments of, of just meeting people and just it's authenticity. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, you know, comes and yeah. So I, I, I think there is that both ways. Right. And, and I, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, and I think that's, like I said, probably why you've been able to be sustainable in this line of work is that, you know, you actually enjoy it and you like the people and you believe in them too. And I think that's, you know, I, I love that what you're saying, you know, we need to believe in, in folks until they, you know, believe in themselves. I think that's, that's it's really, not my line, but no, it's but that's one of my right. Mantras. That's a, a good mantra. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, yeah, just people to know that 
people are in their corner and believe in them. Man, mm. that's a that's a pretty special thing. Yeah. And 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 maybe it's like I just believe in their validity and their humanness, and I see that and kind of love that. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. And uh, do you ever, you know, do you ever see the trajectory? And it's, it's hard because you're catching people at that ground zero and then you kind of send them off and hopefully they're, you know, connected and they go off the treatment. Do you ever, you know, is, do you ever get the other side of it where you get to see the, the success stories? You know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky because, you know, we, I get to see kind of both ends of the spectrum. You know, there's the, the ground zero and people that are still in the thick of it, but then also people that got on the other side of it and, you know, got some got some time under their belt uh, do, you, do you ever get that or you just have to trust, <laughs> trust that <that's> happening? <laughs> it's less often you're right. right it's not structurally set up that i that right. i that i run into the people. it's a little bit more random and a little bit more of the uh of the of the sadder sadder side of stuff but mm -hmm. it's uh and but it is the it is the moments of of peeling back of of uh of of, of any facade or any any distraction from yeah from their humanness that mm -hmm. that keep me going i remember one time with uh uh when i was first training i had my first like oh wow i was with a, a in an interview room like in a clinic with a young guy who was injecting methamphetamine and heroin at the time and uh, and uh, they said uh they talked about meta thinking and watching themselves and, and for the first time in their life, calling them themselves on what they were doing. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I was like, wow. Now, if you're going to put that on the table in front of me, that is a gift. Right. And I'm going to remember that one. Like, and it was just so, so moving for me to be allowed to see that kind of awareness emerging in someone who had been distracting themselves and were right. talking about that, yeah. how they had been keeping them that from themselves and right. that they no longer could because they had had that moment when they held it up to themselves right. and wanted to share that with me. And then it was all that like, okay, now how do I find hope and courage and strength and, and a root out right. uh, or, or struggle with knowing that and, and not yet be able to. Right. Sure. Um, you're all starting those... to become aware, but oh, you're right. Right. Totally. You, so... you'd also know what the path ahead is a, a long and hard one. Yeah. And, you know, often really almost close to impossible. Right. And uh, so terrifying. And, and I'm like, yeah. So it was just, uh, those are the, those are the parts rather than the, like, oh, I see people who recovery. I always hold a recovery, uh, um, vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I see that strength in in umbrella workers i just tried to express that and i uh i i try to live those kinds of things in my life uh but uh but it's the i don't see those stories as, as often as i expect you to see them right well you know the, the good thing is you know that, that it, <laughs> they are out there you know and there are a whole lot of people that i mean their story begins in the hospital and it begins with the moment you know meeting yourself and you know i um, you know, yeah. And our, our team, you know, that, that's mm -hmm. some, a lot of times they can be in a whole fog and then all of a sudden they end up in the hospital. And those, those conversations are, are really pivotal a lot of times in people's, um, you know, decision to, you know, 
kind of have that conviction and courage to make that change. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of times I hear people reflecting upon those <laughs> stays in the hospital and, and the interaction with the team. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's incredibly valuable work and, and, and I agree it would be great to have, you know, to mitigate, uh, the, the amount of, you know, I know that you guys see just a, you know, it's a incredible influx of people coming in on a, on a daily basis. And, Hopefully we can start getting some infrastructure in place where the early interventions can mitigate that. But in the meantime, the work that you guys do is, is, is absolutely amazing. And, and I just love your able to blend the clinical approach with the human approach. And, and I think it's something that, you know, yeah, you can tell that you're still passionate about it. And, and, you know, I, we really appreciate it and, and appreciate, you know, what, what you're doing for, for our community. And I think it has a huge impact probably more than, you know, so very sweet Blake yeah. and it's uh, a lot of teachers mm-hmm. a lot of time and uh, and as I say it sort of feeds me too so right on my pleasure yeah awesome what well, was it was great to have you come in um, yeah uh, you know if we ever if we ever need any more uh, you know <laughs> clinical take on something we might i might end up start doing some round tables with these you know so i may i may ask you back in you might not be completely uh, off the hook yet there doug i i have that nerdy <laughs> i like i like the nerdy science okay. you know the the so i'm always happy to chat about that stuff yeah. um uh yeah so if there's if there's for sure if there's components of like the medicine part of it yeah happy to chat amazing yeah well, thanks for having me yeah thanks so it's much for pleasure. taking the time brother yeah Okay, thanks once again to Doug for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come onto the program. I feel like his caring and dedication to the work he does is absolutely heroic and nothing short of miraculous. The fact that Doug can show up day after day in such an intense workplace and strive in earnest to make genuine human connections is just something incredible, and it's something that our entire community feels. So thanks again to Doug. And I will just mention, uh, I think we heard Laika, um, our house dog at foundation house make a guest appearance she's down in the office for the day so she wanted to make her presence known so maybe i'll get her on the program uh, sooner than later uh, anyways um our season of comfortably unnumbed just keeps on rolling along i still have a couple more folks from this year's recovery campaign to interview so we will be getting back to that in two weeks time when we drop our next podcast until then for the umbrella society my name is blake anderson <laughs>